welcome back to House Talk pregame. I am Dr. Lauren Pitts, that knucklehead over there. You know who my personal Santa Claus is. This was good morning, good morning. Disrespecting me already is when I told him I don't feel well. He didn't even care. He started taking cheap shots from the time he said good morning, Dr. Pitts. He's ignorant. I was I was severely abused from Sunday night all day Monday by the delusional fans that are the Dallas Cowboys because had if nobody caught up with the news or anything, they would have thought you all won the Super Bowl Sunday night. Um, but don't worry, my grandma has a saying that she always used to say, what does not come out in the wash will sure enough come out in the rinse. The wash for the Dallas Cowboys is this regular season. And the rinse, as we all know, is the divisional round of the playoffs, which you all have not gotten by in the last 27 years. So don't worry, when the second or third week of January rolls around, all stored with you know what actually i have a, i have a uh, i think i said this in the last season i have a child that's on the way due in january that would be a phenomenal way to come into the world is on the day of the cowboys losing the playoffs i'm gonna speak that into existence i'm just going to speak that into existence right now good morning everybody how's everybody doing this morning how is everybody doing we got a wonderful, wonderful show lined up today for you all. We have a special guest here with us today that we're going to get into in a few minutes. Um, Dr. Pitts. Yes. Is it cooled off in Dallas yet? It is. It is. It was 71 degrees when we first logged in before the show starts. We're at 76 now, but the high, I don't think we're supposed to go much above that today. So we're getting down into the 60s at night and and it's sort of more humane temperatures now. Um, you can go outside without turning into water on your way to the mailbox or cooking your breakfast on the sidewalk. So it, right. it's, it's made life a little bit easier. Yeah. Fall is finally upon us. Well, yeah, officially five more days, fall is finally upon us. Yeah. Um, but no, nah, so we got a great topic for you all today. We're today we're talking about sustainable excellence, right? Yes. You know, we always talk about being able to achieve a certain level of excellence, but I always kind of share this quote with people, you know, I always say life is hard, you know, life is hard making it, life is just as hard, if not harder, maintaining it. And when we talk about reaching a certain level of excellence, it takes years and years of consistent due diligent work to reach a certain level of excellence, but it takes just that much more than some to sustain that level of excellence. So we're going to be talking about what it looks like to a reach that level of excellence and what that excellence can look like in your athletic and personal life, but also what are some things that you can do to sustain that. We have a wonderful guest, Mr. Terry Tucker here today with us that's going to uh, chime in and talk about this topic as well with us. So before we get into all that, Dr. Pitts, any uh, mental health tip of the week, any news you saw going around in the uh, world of sports this week that you want to share? Yeah, I have a bunch of stuff. So okay. just Take bear with me for, for a few minutes. So first and foremost, one of the things that, I, that it's important for us to note is that September is National Suicide Prevention Month, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it is a time to raise awareness and discuss this highly stigmatized subject. Suicidal thoughts, much like mental health conditions, can affect anybody, regardless of age, gender, or background. National Suicide Prevention Month serves as a powerful reminder of the urgent need for mental health care professionals like Ronnie, like myself, and like so many of us. But I would also note that it's, it's a critical time for anybody, right? Because we all need to be aware. We all need to be paying attention to those that are around us so that we can be more in tune to, to signs and symptoms that we might see. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2021, 
1.7 million Americans attempted suicide, and ultimately more than 48,000 people took their own lives. These numbers highlight the immense challenges we face and underscore the critical role that we as mental health practitioners play in offering support and guidance to those in need. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency, call 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And you can also find free local resources just by simply Googling you know, mental health services near me in, in your browser. But what does that look like when it comes to our student athletes? What does it look like when it comes to our professional athletes? Um, there was an amazing article written by one of our colleagues, Ronnie, Dr. Marina Harris. And she talks about, I just wanted to, to share some highlights from this article because it was a powerful read. And the key points that she made in this article that she had written is um, this understanding that college student athletes are dying in mental health crises. And the key points of her articles that college student athletes suicide is at a record high. College athletes are mirrors for the environments created by coaches and staff. And hopefully coach Tucker will be able to touch on that from his time in coaching as well. The athletics culture change is needed to keep athletes safe. And then she went on to say <clears throat> that, and we've talked about this quite a bit, <clears throat> excuse me, on the show, Ronnie, all of the deaths that happened to our athletes by suicide in 2022. And they all had something in common. They were all high achieving. They were all high performing. They all seemed to be doing well, according to everybody around them, right? There were the signs just people didn't see them. And she said, one answer is clear, and that is that athletic departments and affiliated staff have a responsibility to foster cultures of mental wellness rather than athletic excellence alone. Athletic departments have come a long way in the past few decades, so we have to give credit where credit is due. But she, she pointed out some key things that I think that it's really important to know really quickly, and that is that the institutional structure of athletics itself is not built for wellness. It's built for winning. That's one issue. The win at all cost culture and rigid expectations are also felt by staff, which we talked about last season and we touched on last week that the, the coach's mental health has to be taken into consideration too. The trainer's mental health. When you look at the um, the, the documentary that we were talking about that was done on um, Irv Meyer and everything that was going on at the, Florida, the university. Um, Florida. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, and they talked, I, I thought they did an outstanding job of highlighting all of the mental health issues that he was having mm -hmm. as a result of all of the pressure of being the coach of the Gators. Right. Um, she gave some great points that I'm hoping that we can touch on throughout the show today. And she talked about how do we change the culture? She said, although mental health awareness is important, awareness without substantial programming cannot be expected to make a meaningful impact on athletes' mental health. Athletics departments must dedicate significant resources, funding, time, energy to the mental wellness of athletes. And it's also vital to create a mentally healthy environment where athletes feel safe. For example, it's not enough to provide cursory check-ins with athletes. Coaches and staff must create an environment 
where athletes feel safe to truly be honest about how they're doing, even when it's not well. Check in often. Let athletes know that it's okay to feel their emotions, even when those emotions are unpleasant. Do not minimize or make fun of sickness or injury. Do not encourage athletes to push through physical or mental health concerns. And that speaks to that article that you sent me a couple of days ago, Ronnie. And instead, emphasize high effort with ample time for rest and recovery, both physically and mentally. Student-athlete suicide rates have skyrocketed amid a national mental health crisis among adolescents and young adults. Football players seem to be at highest risk for suicide. That's that part. And then just the other couple announcements that I wanted to make on Wednesday, and I do apologize, I, I didn't get a chance to double check to see if you can still register, but the National Society of Black Sports Professionals of North Texas is holding a virtual inside HBCU athletics webinar on Wednesday night. It is um, 6 to 7.30 Central Time, so 7 to 8.30 East Coast Time. Mm -hmm. Registration is fee. Are free. The panelists are John T. Grant, who's the executive director of the Cricket Celebration Bowl and the MEAC and SWAC Challenge kickoff college football games in Atlanta owned and operated by ESPN events. Tiffany Dawn Sykes, who's the vice president and director of intercollegiate athletics at Florida A&M. Derek Weber, who's the president and CEO at Weber Marketing and Consulting. Um, and then it's being moderated by Jordan Thomas, who's the senior manager and partnership sales for the Long Island Nets. Um, so phenomenal event. I will be attending that virtual event. I registered for it a few weeks ago and I just forgot to mention it. And then just the last announcement that I wanted to make is that um, the philanthropic group gifted HBCUs $124 million to increase student enrollment and retention. The HBCU Transformation Project, a collaborative venture between the United Negro College Fund Thurgood Marshall College Fund and the Partnership for Education Advancement announced on Wednesday a $124 million investment from philanthropic group Blue Meriden Partners. And the gift will be used to increase enrollment, improve efficiency, enhance infrastructure, and promote economic mobility at some of the nation's HBCUs, according to a news release by the HBCU Transformation Project. So I just wanted to make sure that folks were aware of that. And that's all I had. <clears throat> thank you for that thank you for sharing um i don't have anything uh to add to that i think you said all of that uh very beautifully especially in your mental health tip of the week um so yeah let's go ahead and get started so for our guests i'm gonna I'm read our guests uh bio real quick and then, uh give him a chance to uh fill in anything and then also let's get this started so Terry Tucker is a motivational speaker, author, and international podcast guest on the topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. He has a business administration degree from the Citadel, where he also played uh, Division I college basketball, and a master's degree from Boston University. In his professional career, Terry has been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, a SWAT team hostage negotiator, a high school basketball coach, business owner, motivational speaker, and for the past 11 years, a cancer warrior. Um, he is the author of the book, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry has also been featured in Authority, Thrive Global, and Human Capital Leadership Magazines. Mr. Tucker, good morning, sir. How are you today? 
I'm great. Ronnie, Lauren, thank you very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We're really excited to have you all here. So let's go ahead and jump right on in, man. So, Mr. Tucker, if you don't mind, and if it's okay if I call you Mr. Tucker, I'll call me Terry, please. Gotcha. <laughs> I, it's a it's a it's a uh, habit of, of manners that has been instilled in me for uh, for years. But so, Terry, um, so tell people a little bit about yourself, how you came to be who you are, and um, also, you know, how athletics also helped shape uh, some of your life as well, too. Sure. So I, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and actually played college basketball at the Citadel. I have a my youngest brother, six foot seven. It was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. And my other brother is six foot six and was an NCAA Division II All-American two Thank years you. in a row and was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. So our entire upbringing was athletics. I mean, we played football, baseball, basketball. We, we As we got older, we kind of specialized in what sport we enjoyed and that. So, but I, I think it goes, a lot of it goes back to our, our parents. I mean, our parents taught us the value of family, of loving each other, of caring for each other, of supporting each other. And my parents used to do what I call divide and conquer parenting where, you know, I'd have a game on Thursday night at five o'clock at this location and dad would take me to that because my brother had a practice at the exact same time at another location. And so my mom would have to have to go to that. And I, I just, I mean, you can imagine three growing boys. My mom was like a regular at the grocery store. You know, I need another gallon of milk. I need more, you know, a roast or, or chicken or whatever it was that we were eating in that. I mean, we, we ate my parents out of house and home but our parents were really kind of, they were the people that set the foundation for my brothers and I. And we, we all have college degrees. We all have master's degrees. We've all been relatively successful in life. And that's really what it's about. And sports certainly helped me do that. I mean, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old, played all the way up till I graduated from college. And then I had the opportunity to coach our daughter who fortunately or unfortunately got my height and is six foot two and actually played basketball at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, she played for one year until she blew out her knee, and then that, that was the end of her career. But got an education and is now an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. So yeah. I'm actually kind of excited. The Notre Dame game today, her roommate and one of her bridesmaids is doing the flyover at the game. She's a pilot. So kind of excited for that today. And that I got a quick, how tall are your parents? My dad was six foot five. My mom was five foot seven. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Man. So you could see us in church, you know, six, eight, six, seven, six, 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 five. Or we always used to say, if you sat behind us in church growing up, not a prayer's you chance you're going to see anything that was going on in front of us. So <laughs> you, they might not, they might not hear your prayers uh, from behind y'all. Exactly. <laughs> That's what's up. So what let so as you were growing up and you settled on basketball as kind of like you said the, the sport of focus for you um what led you to the citadel I, I was originally going to go to the university of toledo uh, mm -hmm. i'd been there for a visit it was in the mid-american conference it was close enough to chicago that my family could come and visit me a girlfriend could come and watch the games and i went for a visit they offered me a scholarship I verbally committed. It was before the signing period for the NCAA. And two weeks later, I get a call from them. It said, you know, we know we offered you this scholarship, but we're not sure we have it. 
So we'll call you back in a couple of weeks and let you know. And I was, I was a very immature kid. I, I, I did not, I didn't understand what that meant. Two weeks later, they called back and said, hey, we have this scholarship. And I said, oh, okay, I, I guess I'm still coming then. And my dad, who was a, just a great guy, he was kind of my hero, kind of pulled me aside and he said, are you, have you thought about this? Have you, and I, and I hadn't, I, I mean, you know, I was a basketball player. I was a jock. I, I and I, I said, no, what do you, he's like, do you want to play for somebody who offers you something and then takes it back from you and then offers it again? Do they have your best interest at heart when you go to school? Right. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I said, let me sleep on it. Let me, let me think about it and stuff like that. And I remember coming, sitting at the dinner table the next night. And I told my dad, I said, no, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to Toledo. And he said, okay, well, what's your second choice? And my second choice was, was the Citadel in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Les Robinson was a, a, hum, a great coach. I had three knee surgeries in high school. And he said, look, if you could blow your knee out day one, I will guarantee you a scholarship for four years to get your college degree. And I think my parents and I were like, that's the kind of human being you want to be. You want to be part of that that culture, that that group of people led by this man. And so that's how I ended up at the Citadel. Oh, okay. How was how would you describe your uh, college playing career? And then what was that transition like for you post career? I know you say you transitioned right into coaching immediately. So, or did you? Or did you? I know you said you coached your daughter. So, what was that transition like after your college career was over with? Yeah, the Citadel was, um, I don't know how to describe it. I graduated from the Citadel, but I kind of look at it more like I survived the Citadel. When I was at the Citadel, it was an all-male military college. And, and they didn't say this, but really the design was get rid of the weak and accentuate the strong, make you a strong, you know, can you, can you survive this process? I, I remember when, when I first got there, now it's Charleston, South Carolina. So it's, you know, it's August. It's so it's 900 degrees and it's 99% humidity. You're sweating in the shower. They right. took us all in the shower as freshmen, turned on all the hot water and said, you're staying here until somebody passes out. Now, I don't know too many people that would be like, you know, I was like, I came here to play basketball, you know? And right. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? So I really, I was going to quit. I absolutely was going to quit. I remember walking over to the, to the field house to tell the coaches, I, I'd never quit anything in my life to quit, that I was going to quit. And I, I said, you know what? I'm going to check and see if I got any mail. I had a seven page handwritten letter from my father who basically said, get out of your head, get out of your way. He said, you've called home seven times since you've been there and not once have you asked about anybody here, your mom, your brothers, your, your girlfriend, your, your grand, nothing. It's all about you. He's like, stop thinking about you and start thinking about how you can participate. You can be part of this group. You can make people better. And I literally, I, I'm at the, in the rafters of the field house, reading this letter, crying like a baby. And I'm like, I can't quit now. You know, my dad has sent me this letter, sent me this challenge. I know you can do this. I know you can do this. You survived three knee surgeries in high school. I know you can do this, but you've got to be the one to decide that. And so I took the handkerchief out of my pocket, wiped my eyes, put the letter in my pocket, went back to the barracks and said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And four years later, I was able to graduate. So that was, 
you know, I, I learned a lot. I grew up a ton at, at, at the Citadel. I really did. It was a good situation for me. I'm glad I went there. You know, fast forward, I don't know, 20 years later, now I'm coaching my daughter. Hmm. And, and the thing you got to understand is I have no sisters. I went to an all boys Catholic high school in Chicago. I went to the Citadel when it was all male. So I remember when my wife and I went to the OBGYN, you know, when she was pregnant, it's like, do you want to know what, what the sex is? I'm like, yeah, sure. And she's like, well, you should buy pink. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you need to leave it in there until it's done. I have no idea <laughs> how to raise a girl. I have absolutely no idea what the heck is going on here. So now I'm coaching girls high school basketball and I am yeah. so out of my element. I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, girls, and I'll, I'll give you a quick story. There's a game going on right in front of us. We're on the bench. I point to one of the girls on the bench and I say, go in for so-and-so. And she, you know, she shakes her head. Yes. I go back to watching the game and out of the corner of my eye, I can see the scorers table. There's nobody there. So I turn back to her and I'm like, get in the game. And, you know, gives me the yes, shake the head. Yes. And I turn back around and I'm watching the game. And again, out of the corner of my eye, I cannot, I can see the scores. Nobody there. And so I turn back to her. And I'm like, get in the game. Now she's shaking me off like a major league pitcher. You know, it's like, no, no, not going in the game. Not going in. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I bring her to me, literally with the game going on right in front of us. I put my hands on her shoulder. I'm like, what's wrong? All of a sudden, the tears start down the, down the cheeks. And I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, coach, I don't want to go in the game. I'm like, there are no uniform wearers on this team. You don't get to sit on the bench and wear the uniform. I need you in the game. Tell me what's wrong. Well, if I'm afraid if I go in the game and make a mistake, my friends in the stands oh. will make fun of me for making that mistake. And I said to her, what about your responsibility to your teammates? Mm. You come out here every day, you work on your game to get better, but you also work to make your teammates better. They are yeah. relying on you. I need you in the game now. I know you might make a mistake. That's okay. But just go in there and do your best. I'm like, am I really having a counseling session here on the side of the court as the game is going on? I, yes, I did. I, it, it, but it was it was the strangest thing for me because, I, I mean, Ronnie, being a guy, you know, when you were practicing, you were like, I couldn't wait to go in the game. I don't care how terrible you were, how mismatched you were. I wanted to play. Right. I did not understand that mentality, that mindset of uh -huh. I don't want to play because I'm afraid of what my friends might think. Yeah. That was Oh, go ahead, Dr. Pitts. Go no, ahead. no, go ahead. Finish your thought first, and then I'll. I'll... I was just gonna say that was a, a very powerful reframe, and and even and you kind of almost kind of use the same science that your dad used on you. You know, where we can get so trapped in our head sometimes that we don't realize if we just take a step back and really can assess the uh, situation for what it is and what we can do in that moment is not up trying to control everything at one time. Is doing what you can do, control what you can control, and as things become available and as opportunities present itself, then you can make certain moves and even in that situation reframing to her like look we're in a game right now who's ever in the stands i don't care if it's a million people in the stands or one person in the stands they're going to talk about you regardless but you have a responsibility to your teammates you have a responsibility to yourself that what you do in practice what you do in the locker room what you do watching film and in the weight room right that that product that finished result and now you have a chance to see that but you have to believe in yourself as much as I believe in you to go out here and carry that out. That's a hell of a reframe coach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was, I, when I took over this team, they were 
they were terrible. They were, they were cellar dwellers. You know, they, they, they didn't know how to win. They knew how to lose. They, they, they had got that down, down pat. And so it was changing the culture of mm-hmm. we expect to win. We, you know, and, and, and it's, and, and you know, it's not about the scoreboard. You know, I love the Nelson Mandela quote, you know, the mm-hmm. former president of South Africa who said, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And I love right. that. I said all the time. I, I, said, I don't believe in wins and losses. I believe in wins and lessons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What are you learning here? Because I mean, none of these kids were going to go. I, I mean, my daughter did play at the next level, but none of the rest of the kids played at the next level. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what are you learning as a teammate? Right. You know, how, how to be a good teammate, how to lose, how to win, how, how to push yourself. All these things that mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach and we can go into the parents. The parents were the worst part of coaching. And, and, and I, the yeah, kids were yeah. great. They were like sponges, you know, they were taking all this up, but the parents were like, Oh no, you know, you're better than so-and-so. And I mean, I got you for two hours, you know, five days a week, six days a week, your parents have you the rest of the time. So at the dinner table, it's like coach Tucker doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know. Okay. That's fine. I'm doing the best I can. Right. Yeah. What I wanted to, to, get your perspective on Terry is when you talk about shower torture (laughs) at Citadel and then fast forward to coaching. When did you become more aware or or did you become aware of the the element of mental health and mental wellness in your athletic athletic journey as a player and as a coach? I I think I learned that I certainly learned it when I was younger. So I had my first knee surgery when I was 15 years old and ended up having three during my my high school career. And I remember when I went back playing basketball after I finally was able to, you know, rehab and and go back. I remember my my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you're probably a step slower since your surgeries and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I am still playing at an elite level and coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their college or university. I learned early that I needed to change, you know, to change the narrative, to to put something positive in there. I, I remember there was a study done by the Cleveland Clinic that said that we have 60 to 70 thousand thoughts that that pass through our minds every day most of which we don't even pay attention to and that like 90 or 95 percent of those thoughts are the same thoughts from yesterday so we only have about 3,500 new thoughts a day but the other thing I found was interesting because I'm old enough that I took typing in high school you know 40 words a minute and typing got me an A your mind operates at a speed of a thousand words a minute and, and so, but the bottom line is your mind can only hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative thought? So I, I'm, I, I was, I was real, I learned early, you know, that you need to change the narrative. I mean, we're human beings. We're going to have negative thoughts. I don't care how positive you are, but right. you needed to, you needed to change the narrative. And like I said, when I was at the Citadel, I, I was so in my way. I was so in my head. I, I wasn't seeing that. I, I thought, you know, no, this is terrible. I'm a thousand miles from home. You know, I miss my family. I miss my girlfriend. I miss everything. I, you know, this is, ter- I could not see the benefit of what I was getting a free education, not free, but I was getting a college education in exchange for the talent that I had to play basketball. 
I mean, how, how, how good does that get? A free education to do something I love. Are you crazy? Boy, get out of your head, boy. You're, you, you, need, you need to go do this. <laughs> right, right. Now, it, it, it sound, I always tell people, you know, it, it sounds good to, you know, be a full-ride scholar athlete and things like that. But even in that instance, you know, that brings its own set of challenges, expectations, anxiety, because I was I played at uh, a Division II college. And on my we had maybe 70 to 80 players per year, give or take out of those seven to 80 players. Now the division two level, you're allowed to have up to 35 um, scholarship athletes, but at an HBCU, we didn't have the funds to even give out 35 four hour scholarships. So on a team of 80 players, it was me and maybe five or six other people who were on four rides. Everybody else had their scholarship money split up a thousand here, 2000 there, maybe 3000 there, whatever the case may be. So here I come in as a freshman like you, I, everything's paid for. I just got to show up and be an athlete, you know? And so even then that brings its own set of expectations. And for me, I had to learn that, yeah, I was good in high school, but when you get to college, all these people are good too. Right. Like They're not just there to be Jersey wearers, as you were saying, some of these people actually think they have a shot at the next level. And so, you know, yeah. And so you really have to train yourself to understand that, like you said, we're entitled to all our thoughts, right? We're entitled to the good ones, the bad ones, the hideous ones, all of that. We're entitled to those thoughts. Those are our thoughts. What we're not entitled to is to act on thoughts or feelings that we have no evidence to support just because we feel it or we think it. That's what we're not entitled to. And I think that's a lot of things people have a hard time understanding is just because you have the thought or feeling does not mean you have to act on it or feel that it's true if you cannot support it or substantiate it being true. That, that's one of the things that I say to my clients all the time is that emotions alone, your feelings alone are horrible advisors. They're mm-hmm. horrible advisors. You want to make these decisions running on emotions and your, your feelings change like the weather. Your feelings change like the, the, the temperature and the wind. And, and so now you've made this emotionally driven decision that, oh, by the way, wasn't well-informed. And now you're full of regret and why. And, and I love that you both talk about those narratives because what people don't, and I've said this before, people don't realize that their thoughts and feelings are the remote control that determines the, the, the emotional frequency, if you will, that your brain is operating on. That's why you all as athletes say all the time, and dad said, get out of your head, get out of your head, get out of your head because those thoughts and feelings are causing your freaking remote control to, to go crazy. And now you've got all these crazy thoughts coming out. And before you know it, you have a, felt, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You keep telling yourself you're a failure. You keep telling yourself you're going to miss it. Guess what? You are. Because you've convinced yourself, you have conditioned yourself to believe these internal negative narratives. And I applaud your parents, Terry, because so oftentimes, and that's actually one of the things that I'm going to touch on when I, when I close this out later, is that the role that these parents play in how these kids are thinking and how they think impacts their performance. And it's this vicious cycle that has so many moving parts. And the parents are in this beautiful position to do what your parents did. But how many parents have you encountered that co-sign the kid being a quitter, that co-sign, like you said, that hype them up to believe that, excuse me, to believe that there's something that they're really not. And it's, 
I saw on uh, Facebook uh, several weeks ago was actually a kid that I used to mentor. And he was saying that his daughter was, you know, she was playing soccer or what she was doing. And they were doing a little tournament and they wanted to give her um, a little ribbon because the other kids got a ribbon. He was like, no, <laughs> she played horribly. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm going to have a developmental conversation around, like, I'm not going to beat her up about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a developmental conversation with her that you don't, you don't get rewarded for playing like you played. You didn't practice. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Like you said, coach, to show up for your team. You're not getting a ribbon for playing like, we're not doing that. And the coaches were kind of, you know, you're being too hard. No, I'm not. This is a message for life. This is a narrative. And we're trying to avoid destructive entitlement here. We are not rewarding sucky play. That's not happening. You're That's absolutely not- right. My, my wife and I were talking about this. Our daughter started out playing YMCA basketball, you know, and, and I remember the first time, you know, and, and they're, they're just teaching the kids the rules. I mean, they're terrible. Half of them can't get the ball to the basket and all. I mean, the whole nine yards. And then the last game of the season, it's like, okay, everybody come over in the corner. All right, when I call your name, come up and get your trophy. And I was like, trophy? For what? Showing up? You, I, I mean, our daughter's trophy went in the garbage. It was like, I'm sorry, you didn't earn that trophy. I used to tell my players, you're unique, but you're not special. And, you know, I'm not going to treat you equally. You, you know, I, I sometimes I would tell my point guard, look, I don't want you to shoot. You're a terrible shooter. But what I want you to do is distribute the ball to the people who can shoot. And then the parents would go, why can't my kid shoot? Because uh, she's terrible. You know, I, I used to say, you know, good players are made in the offseason. Good teams are made in the season. What did your kid do in the offseason to become a better shooter? Oh, nothing. Okay. Uh, are we done with this conversation? Because it, it, it's not worth talking about. She didn't do anything to make herself better. So I'm not going to let her shoot and put our team at a disadvantage. I want her to distribute to the people who can shoot. And, and that whole atmosphere, you're, you're right. It's like, you know, you get it. And it's my generation. I, 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 we'll take, we're the ones who's, who made everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's special. I'm sorry, the world doesn't work that way. You know, if you don't do well, you don't get rewarded. You don't get the corner office. You don't get the million dollar check. You don't get the company. You don't get that stuff. You have to produce. And it's it's almost it's almost as if giving the participation trophy, as I like to call them, it almost kind of robs the message of wins and lessons. Like, you know, if I'm trying to teach you a lesson here, but all you we know, kids, kids have a one track mind. They see something and they tunnel vision on that. And that's all they think about. If I'm sitting there trying to have that moment with you and teach you about understanding that just because you put in the effort, it doesn't always work out your way, but here's this trophy over here. You're not hearing nothing I just said. You just see the trophy and sometimes kids see it as well. Even if I don't give my best effort, I can still get rewarded in some way, shape or form. And we see now as you get older, as we become into adulthood, when you become an adult, I I tell uh, young teenagers and young adults all the time, just because you put in your best effort or you do everything the right way, that does not guarantee you won't get the results you want. Doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. You put the work in and if it works out in your favor, hey, you did something right. If it doesn't work out in your favor, there is a lesson to be learned here. There's always an opportunity to learn how you and the situation, the environment around you can be different just because it didn't go right this time. You make a a great point on that. I did want to ask you, um, Terry, kind of transitioning. um, 
being an athlete your entire life, coming out of college, I would imagine you still maintain some type of athletic form and everything, even throughout your uh, professional career. I wanted to uh, ask you before we got into your book, um, talk to us about what it was like um, discovering your cancer diagnosis and then having to deal with uh, two separate amputations. In 2018, you talked about that you had your foot amputated and then uh, in 2020, you had your leg amputated. What was that process like? And then what were some of the the lessons that you've learned as an athlete and just in your early professional career? How did that help you during that time as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you can imagine it. It it's been terrible. You know, I I mean, here I am. I'm I'm coaching girls high school basketball. I have a callus break open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe, and initially don't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment, went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, I get the call that all of us dread. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have this incredibly rare form of melanoma. And most people think a melanoma is too much exposure to the sun and it affects the melon, the pigment in our skin. He said, you have this rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands, has nothing to do with sun exposure. And he recommended I go to MD Anderson and Cancer Center in Houston. And I did. And they pretty much told me, this is a death sentence. We have nothing to offer you other than surgery. You'll probably be dead in two years. So I said, you know what? Well, let's turn it into a life sentence. How about we do that? You know, the death, I can't control the dead part of it. You know, when I die, how I die, where I die, way above my pay grade. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. But I remember, uh, I think I went through all the stages of grief that we, we would associate with that kind of a diagnosis. First, it was denial. I can't possibly have cancer. I've done everything right in my life. Then it was, I got mad. I can't possibly have cancer. I've done everything right in my life. Mm-hmm. And then our daughter was in high school. So there was a bargaining kind of with God hey, look, just let me live long enough to see her graduate from high school. And then I got down. Absolutely. I I, kind of got depressed. And then I got to a point where this sucks, but I'm going to have to embrace the suck, for lack of a better term. I do not like the cards that I have been dealt, but I'm going to have to play these cards to the best of my ability. And Mm -hmm. and I've done that for the last 11, almost 11 and a half years now. And Mm -hmm. I I remember, I'll give you one final story. When I had my leg amputated, I also found out I had tumors in my lungs and I'm still being treated for those tumors in my lungs. And I remember my doctor showed me my CAT scan and I have no medical background. I don't know how to read a CAT scan, but you can kind of look at it and say, well, that sure doesn't belong there, you know, and stuff like that. And I remember I had these big tumors in my lungs. I had fluid all around the space, the pleural spaces of my lungs. And I can still see my oncologist. And I asked him, I said, how was I alive? And he put his head down and he shook his head no. And then he lifted his head up and he looked at me and said, I don't know because you shouldn't have been. Which mm-hmm. said to me, God's not done with me yet. When mm-hmm. I die, how I die, like where, where that way above my pay grade, like I said, don't worry about the dying part, mm-hmm. spending more time now 
just worrying about the living part. Can I jump in there? Absolutely. So there's something you don't know, Ronnie. You know that I'm a cancer survivor, but you don't know that I too was diagnosed with melanoma. I was given six months to live. They gave me a death sentence too. My melanoma diagnosis came right after my 14th birthday. Oh. Yep, right after my 14th birthday. So the devastation that my family experienced they didn't think I was going to see my eighth grade graduation. They certainly didn't think that I was going to live to get ready to be turning 56. But to your point, you do go through the whole gamut of the, the stages of grief, every single last one of them. That was the one and only time that I attempted suicide because I initially entertained that internal negative narrative. I initially accept that death sentence until my grandparents said, oh, no, 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 we're, we're not doing that. The word of God says to call upon the elders of the church. And that's exactly what they did. And folks went to laying hands and praying and three surgeries later and 10 years worth of, of treatment and care under the University of Pennsylvania Hospital Malignant Melanoma Clinic. I was, just like you said here, like I was the first person of color to be treated for melanoma at UPenn Clinic at that time. And there was no explanation. You don't just walk around with your back hanging, right? Like, yeah, but I have a scar now that three surgeries and, and treatments later, I have a scar that's literally the whole length of my back and cancer cells two inches deep. And then there were cells that attached themselves to my hips. So when I was in high school, there was a, a period of time where I had to walk with a cane. I looked like the hunchback of Notre Dame, except the lump was coming out my hip and it was crazy. And there was, the doctor said the exact same thing. There was no explanation for why I was alive. But my grandparents said exactly what you said. God's not through with her yet. And here I sit getting ready to turn 56 in a couple of months. And it's like, and then the second diagnosis was my first year in grad school, started grad school in January, started grad school in September, January, go for a routine smashogram. Doctor sent him like, mm, I'm seeing something, eh. sent it. Sure enough, go to the cancer uh, center at Christiana Hospital in Delaware. And sure enough, had to have a lumpectomy in March of my first year in grad school. So I'll make it, so just craziness and the same thing. Why are you still here? Because God's not through with me yet. So I applaud you and people don't get, and it's, and I, and I don't mean this to sound as insensitively as, as some might take it, but I get frustrated. I find myself getting frustrated with my clients sometimes that just every curveball that life throws them, they want to curl up in a ball and quit. Like their answer for everything is just to quit. And I'm like, can you give me one reason? Can you give me one reason why you should live? Can you give me one reason why you should, I don't know, maybe it could be your kids. Maybe it could be your husband. Maybe it could be your cat or your dog or your mom or your dad, maybe something. Can you give me, you've given me all the reasons why you wanna give up. Can you give me one reason why your life is worth fighting for? And they're always so quick to say, Dr. Pitch, you don't understand. Yes, I do. <laughs> Yes, I do. I do understand. I know what it's like to have multiple death sentences. I've had so many freaking near-death experiences, it's not even funny. Fight. 
Quit being a turtle and hiding in yourself and fight because whether you believe in God or not, he ain't through with you yet. You're here for a reason. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> no, I, you know, and, and you make a huge point. And, and I think one of the things that team sports taught me, and Ronnie, you, you probably feel the same way, is, is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And I am on a clinical trial drug now that more than likely is not going to save my life. And, and my nurses, they look at me like, why do you keep coming back and doing this? Why do you keep throwing up? Why do you keep shaking? Why do you keep doing this? And I tell them, because this is bigger than me. You know, maybe five years from now, 10 years from now, based on the data the doctors are gleaning from my blood tests and my scans, they'll be able to perfect this drug. So maybe it will cure somebody. So maybe they won't die and they'll be able to be with their family. I probably won't be here. But to me, that's being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And I think for me, that started out something that I learned, a big thing that I learned being part of team sports. Right. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I always tell people, you know, as much as I miss the actual games, playing in the games and things like that, the one thing I, I miss the absolute most is just being around my teammates, being in the locker room. Um, those those memories, those experiences, the good moments, the bad moments, you you have those those brothers around you and for the female athletes, your, your sisters around you. And it's, it's an unbreakable bond. You know, it, it is it's almost like your work family. Like, oh, they always say like outside of your family, you have at home, you spend the majority of your time on a week to week basis with your work family. And football was like that for me, you know, as much as I, you know, love being at home, my parents and everything. I was around my teammates. I, I love being in the locker room. I love the, the banter, the jokes, the pranks and all that. You can't replicate that. Like once you finish playing sports, you cannot replicate that you can have friends and you can have social groups and stuff like that, but just those experiences you share with, with your teammates, you can't put a price on that or, or really re replicate that in your adult life. Um, Terry, I, I wanted to ask you, um, so we talked about our topic being sustainable excellence and, you know, and from a, a, a peak performance standpoint, we know there are six things that really tie into that. We know is physical, technical, tactical, mental life balance, and a good professional coach athlete relationship. And in relation to your book, Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life, kind of talk to us about what was the inspiration behind your book. And then um, we, we do have a little bit of time if you wanted to maybe lead into maybe some of those principles that you highlight in your book. Sure. So Sustainable Excellence was really a book born out of two conversations that I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man in college who reached out to me on social media. And he said, what do you think are the most important things I should learn, not to just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? 
And I didn't want to give them the, you know, get up early, work hard, help out. I, I didn't want to give them the, the cliches. I wanted to see if we could go deeper. So I spent some time, was taking some notes and kind of had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to them. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, I, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three to four month period where I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Oh, oh, oh. <clears throat> as you, as you've had to adjust to life with, you know, being an amputee, still, still being a warrior with their, with their cancer diagnosis and everything, how have these principles that you curated in this book, how have they helped you along in this journey and as you continue to push forward? Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're just things I've learned over my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I, they're, they're 10 principles. They're not in any particular order. Number one isn't any more important than number seven or anything like that. But I, I'll give you a couple of them. And it's always fun for me as an author when somebody reaches out because there's always one principle that sort of resonates with the reader. But, you know, it's kind of the, the highlight principle. It's a great place to start a conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and I wrote all 10 of them, but there's one that resonates with me. And I'm sort of ashamed to say it does because I've done this so many times in my life. And here's the principle. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities mm -hmm. instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I know, you know, oh, I want to do this. Oh, wait a minute. Ugh, maybe I don't have enough information or maybe I'm not smart enough. Or what will people say about me if I fail? That's thinking with your fears and your insecurities. That's not thinking with your minds. And whenever I speak, especially to young people, I always tell them, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be those things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So that, that's one principle. Uh, there's a principle in there. And I know, especially the young people, I always get kind of like, well, that's kind of stupid, but it's, it's fail and fail often, especially when you're young. Make mistakes, learn from those mistakes. And people, somehow, especially young people, they look at a, at a athlete or an entertainer or somebody who's influential and they're like, oh my gosh, that person's successful. I'm like, I guarantee you the road to that person's success is paved with failure. It's, it's paved with all kinds of problems, but you don't see that. Right. And I go back to my daughter who, you know, had an NBA three-point shot. But I, what, what people saw was her doing that in the game. What they didn't see is all those hours in the hot, sweaty, you know, humid, stinky gymnasium putting up thousands and thousands and thousands of shots to get to the point where, they, where she could do that. I remember Jerry Rice, the Football Hall of Fame uh, receiver from the San Francisco 49ers, had a great quote. He said, today I will do what others won't so tomorrow I can do what others can't. Yeah. And I love that quote. I, I'm, I mean, it's, it's just, it's such an amazing quote. And I'll, I'll leave you with one more quote. This is, I'm, I'm really going to date myself now. 1976, it's my 16th birthday. It's also the country's bicentennial celebration. There was a U.S. gold medal winning Olympic swimmer by the name of Shirley Babishoff, who had one of the greatest yet simplest quotes I ever heard. And this is what she said. Winners think about what they want to happen, 
losers think about what they don't want to happen. Winners can override their negative brains and focus on the things they want to occur. Losers cannot see the importance of pursuing a goal or a dream. They, again, what we were talking about, they can't get out of their head. They can't get out of their own way to be successful. So those are, those are just a couple of things that, that are in the book. There's, there's all kinds of other things from my time as a negotiator and, and things like that that are also in there. I, I love the I love the last principle you shared. I have that conversation hundreds of times over with mm-hmm. young people. I, I think one of the biggest detriments that my generation, the millennials and the generation after me, the Gen Zers have had to deal with is the societal assumption that you have to have certain things checked off by 25. You have to have certain things checked off by 30. And I I work with so many people who by the time they're 25, you can just see life just being deflated out of them because I don't have a house. I don't make a hundred thousand a year. I don't have Mm -hmm. a wife or a husband. I don't have three little kids running around the white picket fence in our yard and everything. And they feel like their life is an absolute failure. And I always ask them, I said, well, Whose rule book are you going by? Are you going by the rule book of society or are you going by the rule book in which you are illustrating right now for yourself? I always tell adults, when we turn 18, it is your responsibility to live and be the life that you see fit for you. For the first 18 years of your life, that was your family's job to curate that, give you the tools and resources necessary to deal with life's ups and downs. But when you are 18, when you become an adult by law, not by maturity or by stature, but by law, it is your responsibility to be the author and illustrator of your life. Yeah. Right. You we always talk about what we want to see. But as an adult, the beauty of being an adult is now you have that control to do and be what you think about all the time. I always tell people, I can give you a plan to be successful in any type of avenue, any type of professional there is. There's a plan for it. It's not the plan we question. Do you believe in yourself to follow the plan when the plan does not go according to plan? And a lot of times people have a hard time answering yes because it's belief in self. And I really appreciate you sharing that because so many people think if I don't have this checked off by then, if I haven't done this by that, my life is just a wash and I'll just sail off into this misery of a sunset that I can't do for myself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I did want well, to- Can I tell, can I just follow up on that with one quick story? Go ahead. So I've seen to think, and you probably would agree with this, both of you, people seem to think that they're born empty and that once they get out of school and they sort of get into life, that their job is then to fill themselves up. Kind of like you said, you know, I want to get a good education. I want to get a good job, make a lot of money, drive a nice car, have a great family, live in a nice house and all that. And they, they, they think filling themselves up is somehow going to make them happy and fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And what I've come to understand is it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full with everything we need to be successful already inside of us. We just need to pull it out, use it for our benefit. And so it's not what we get. It should be what we give. It should be about pouring ourselves out, certainly for the betterment of ourselves, but also for the betterment of our family, of our community, of our society, of our country. And I've seen so many people that, you know, oh, if I have this, I'll be happy. Or if I have that, I'll be happy. And the problem is there's always that next thing. There's always one more thing that if I get that, then I'll be happy. Oh, I'm still not happy. And, and I just, I, I just like, it's not that you're born empty. You're born full. Your yeah. job should be to empty yourself out for the betterment of this world. Amen. 
I wholeheartedly agree with that. Dr. Pizza, it seemed like you wanted to uh, chime in on a point real quick. Yeah, because you you guys were hitting some of my buzzwords that were that were triggering some of the things that I tell my clients. And one of the things that I, I often tell them is that you have to get the right attitude in spite of the atmospheric conditions that you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And that when you develop the right attitude in spite of the circumstances that you find yourself in, no matter how turbulent or or, or um, uh, unpredictable life is the, the way that it's happening to you, you have to remember is that your attitude is sort of married to your feelings because here's the other thing that I share. You muted yourself. Sorry about that. It's a maxim in psychology that says you feel what you think. In other words, your feelings are the result of what's going on in your mind. So when you're having these life-throwing curveballs at you and you have made the decision to stamp it as negative, that, that's, that's an attitude problem. There, there's, there's space to, to adjust your attitude there. And you, it's like you said, life is full of ups and downs. Life is full of these unexpected circumstances, we cannot control everything. Mm-hmm. And part of that, th- this need to control you, you, these young folks are comparing themselves to everybody and they wanna be the, create your own unique template. And, and oh, by the way, that unique template starts with cleansing your mind by developing the right attitude, regardless of what the circumstances are. There's research that's been done that has shown that people like Terry, like myself, people that have had worse types of cancers and and that have had to go through even more treatment and and pain than we have and when we've done our fair share, that there was a study done some years ago that showed that you um, you had two groups, same diagnosis, and one of the groups came to their diagnosis. Whereas the other group didn't. And it was exactly what you said, Terry, when they were interviewed, you said, well, why did you live this? Because I chose to. I chose to not have my diagnosis define me. And and certainly we're not going to suggest that that's the case with every single solitary person. There are plenty of people who will to live and it just, it's their time. It's their time. But, But attitude plays a part. Attitude absolutely positively plays a part in this. And you know, that, that's where we are with it. Ronnie, I'll let you go ahead and ask any final questions you have, and then I'll close this out because it's time. Goodness okay. gracious. Well, no, I, I don't have any final questions. Uh, mm-hmm. I just want to say, uh, Terry, it has been a, a pleasure to talk with you mm-hmm. and hear your story and hear your perspective yeah. on sustainable excellence and just life itself. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and just hearing your, you know, your story and your current uh, battles of being a warrior and everything with your diagnosis and everything. Yeah. Uh, my heart and my prayers go out to you to continue to give you the strength, the courage, and the bravery to run towards life every single day. Yes. Um, and like you said, you know, we have no control over when we get that tap on the shoulder from the big man upstairs and say, hey, I need you to bring in your playbook. Um, but while we're still down here and able to make plays, um, you know, hey, I, I know you're going to continue being a phenomenal playmaker in your world and the people around you. And, and just thank you for blessing us with your uh, your time and, and your message, man. It, it's been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, do you have any any final words, comments, thoughts you want to leave with the people before we wrap up? 
And how can people get in touch with you? Oh, yeah. How can people get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, so I have a blog. It's called Motivational Check. You can leave me a message there. I put up a thought for the day every day. But nice. that usually comes a question about how you can apply it in your life. I have recommendations mm -hmm. for books to read and stuff like mm -hmm. that. That's all at motivationalcheck.com. Mm -hmm. Let me leave you with this final story. I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like to have my foot amputated in 18 and, and my leg amputated in 2020. I told her it, it certainly hasn't been easy. You know, I'm 63 years old. I'm six foot eight. So learning to walk again, balance wise, falling is not an option when you're six foot eight because you get hurt from this height. But what I told her was cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Lauren. That's who you are, Ronnie. That's who everybody who's yeah. listening to us really is. And we spend a lot of time working on this body. You know, we, we got to go to the gym. We got to get enough rest. We got to eat right. We got to reduce stress. And, and I'm not telling you not to do it. You absolutely should do that. But what I am suggesting is spend a little more time each day working on who you really are, your heart, your mind, and your soul. We all know this body's going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to go away. But your heart, your mind, and your soul those things are eternal and those things are going to live on. And I don't think we spend nearly as much time working on them as we should. Yes, sir. Man, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Pitts. I'm not even going to say what I was going to say now. That's it. <laughs> That's, you know what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's it. Full. Take some, brother. Oh, no, you got it. Take us home this week. You got it. it uh, hey, Terry, we're blessed. We are yes, truly, truly blessed um, and so thankful for you spending this time with us. Continue blessings and prayers to you, sir, to just continue to embrace this healing journey. And you embody excellence. You embody what sustainable excellence is. And, and we are so, so humbled and so grateful that you spent this time with us. Folks, that's it. That's, that's all we have for today. We won't be back for two weeks. We'll see you October 7th. We're, we're, adjusting schedule we're banging out october and november and then we're going to bi-weekly shows so actually you only see us one time in november but you know you got to make the adjustments we're calling it audible right maybe <laughs> when we come back in two weeks maybe maybe the cowboys will come back down to Shut up, ronnie <laughs> goodbye have a was, great weekend i was everybody. gonna i was gonna say terry if you can send your book to dallas they they need to maintain some excellence before they can even sustain any excellence. They might really appreciate your book in the locker room. I think that'd be a staple in their can locker room. I tell you, he can't help it. He can't. I knew he was on his best behavior the whole show. He had to slide it in. He had to. Everybody have a great weekend. Enjoy some football. Plenty of college games on today. Just some really, really, really extraordinary games going on. Let's see what what Prime is doing with Colorado, man. What is going on? Say, give me my theme music tonight at 10. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. See you back here October the 7th. Bye-bye.